0: About 10 years ago, when I enrolled in university as an undergraduate student, I decided to major in European studies. Admittedly, this was in part because I wanted to travel, but also because it gave me the option to study both Europe and Russia without committing to a single discipline. Over the next few years, I had the chance to study history, literature, and languages, and I quickly found out that what I was most interested in is what you might call Eastern Europe. Or, as I often told people, everything east of Germany, including the former Soviet Union. This part of the world became the main focus of my academic studies, and later my professional life. So you can imagine my surprise when, in 2017, I stumbled across an article in the LA Review of Books that opened with the phrase, Eastern Europe is disappearing. That article was authored by none other than Jacob Mikanowski, a writer and historian who has since developed his argument about the disappearance of Eastern Europe into a full fledged book. And he was kind enough to come on the show to talk about it. Welcome to the Naked Pravda. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Naked Pravda, Medusa's English language podcast. I'm Eilish Hart, your host for this week, and the editor of The Beat, a special newsletter from Medusa covering Central and Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, and Central Asia. For this week's show, I interviewed writer and historian Jacob Mikanowski about his new book, Goodbye Eastern Europe, which offers a sweeping history of a region that, he argues, is disappearing. Not in a literal sense, of course. The lands historically referred to as Eastern Europe are very much still there. But 30 plus years after the collapse of communism, the term itself, much like the term post-Soviet, is falling out of fashion, and the entangled diversity that was a hallmark of Eastern European societies prior to the violence of the 20th century now belongs to a lost world. We cover all of that and more in the interview, so let's get to it. My very first question is actually about the title of your book. It's titled, Goodbye, Eastern Europe, An Intimate History of a Divided Land. And I wanted to begin by asking you to explain for our listeners who haven't read it yet, what and where are you referring to when you say Eastern Europe?
1: People have different answers when you ask them, where is Eastern Europe? And increasingly, Eastern Europeans or people who live in what I call Eastern Europe will say they don't live in Eastern Europe. They live in Central Europe. They live in the Nordic zone. They live in the wider Mediterranean world, the Western Adriatic, anything to get rid of that that label, Eastern Europe. I have a big tent, Eastern Europe. For me, it's everything between Germany to the west, Russia to the east, and running from like Estonia down to Albania. So Baltics, Balkans, and what's sometimes called Central Europe, at least the non-German, non-Austrian, non-Swiss, non-German part of Eastern Europe. So the country's sovereignty is historically fragile and threatened. And a zone for me of maximum diversity, maximum social, linguistic, religious, ethnic diversity that's kind of different than what's happening in Western Europe and actually kind of different than what's happening at least in Central Russia, the kind of Russian heartland and even other parts of Eurasia.
0: And so do you think that your like big tent idea of Eastern Europe, do you feel like it differs from popular conceptions about what Eastern Europe is, especially from a Western perspective or in the Western imagination?
1: It depends on discipline, depends on, on where someone is. Increasingly, Central Europe is in tension with it. Just after Russia invaded Ukraine, I read an editorial by a Belarusian intellectual I really liked, called uh, Ihar Babku. And he said, Well, this is a war between Central European diversity and Eastern European uniformity. And I'm like, Yes, I like that idea. But for me, what you're calling Central Europe is my Eastern Europe. So I do have a kind of outsider's perspective I'm inside and outside. I'm Polish, Polish American. I grew up speaking Polish. Grew up going back there a lot and living there for a couple of years. But I also have a kind of an outsider's maybe nostalgia and affection for the idea of East. I don't have to position myself closer to Western Europe. I don't care like how close to the EU I am. Political scientists tend to have kind of like a even bigger Eastern Europe. They'll put Russia and sometimes all of former Soviet Union and kind of a or, or a lot of it in Eastern European umbrella. There's stuff on the margins. You know, people who look at it as it's really post-socialist space. East Germany is part of it or was part of it, and for me, it's not. So there's a lot of debate around the margins. But I have about 20 countries, counting Kosovo, and that's my Eastern Europe.
0: Now that we've clarified what we mean by Eastern Europe in terms of your book and for the purposes of our conversation, I'd like to take a step back and talk about where the idea for this book came from, and specifically your thesis that Eastern Europe is disappearing and becoming a place that doesn't exist. Where did this come from?
1: The genesis of the book was is, is almost 10 years ago now. It was kind of deep, in grad school doldrums. I'd gone through grad school. I'd switched from Soviet history actually to Polish history. I found the work I was doing really interesting. The general, though course were really interesting, and I was trying to work, switch into journalism too. And I had trouble. I was having trouble getting people interested. You know, it seemed like interest was ebbing away. Funding was ebbing away. Um, there was still attention on Russia, but less and less. But Eastern Europe, which had been interesting to people culturally in the '80s and '90s, really vital the literature, the movies and then politically in the 90s had just dropped out of conversation completely. The process of writing the original essay for the book took about two years, then the writing of the pitch for the book. And then so like nine years later, Eastern Europe's very much back in the news. It has attention on it. But people are, I think, the concept is being really hollowed out or evacuated. As on one hand, I think everyone to the west of Russia is trying to position themselves as close to Western Europe as possible, as close to EU-European Western central, however, Mediterranean, however they they do that, while Russia has, kind of taken a Eurasian imaginary, at least.
0: I'd like to ask you to talk a bit more about how you went about researching and writing this book because you've written it for a general audience, but you've really managed to integrate archival work with your own family history and extensive travel experience. So how important were each of these aspects in terms of like your research and in terms of what the book ended up being?
1: Interesting process for me because it's actually a lot of fun. There are multiple tracks. One's a family track, so there's family history woven through it. And I've been working, I've been poking at that on my own for a while. I have a, I think, pretty interesting family. It's a mixed family, Polish-Jewish, Polish-Catholic. The Polish side is actually mixed Lithuanian, German, Czech. And the Jewish side, pretty much politically on the left, at least in the 20th century, in the communist world. And that's typical of the few Polish Jews who stayed, the ones who didn't emigrate after the war, tend to have something to do with communism, with the building of communist power after the war. And then most of those people were also betrayed by their government, their own party in the sixties. And so it's a pretty tangled family history. And it's like pretty interesting goes back far. So I was pushing back digitization of records in just the last couple of years and translation of records from Yiddish, especially let me do things reaching back in the 19th century into the 17th century. It's like really interesting stuff. And then travel, the biggest part was travel because I was pretty familiar with Eastern Europe with my Eastern Europe. Poland, Poland's neighbors. I reported from Poland and Hungary mostly, Czechoslovakia, and then Russia. And there was a whole bigger Eastern Europe I knew from reading, and I had to go to. So I traveled to, I tried, I wanted to hit every country, and COVID got in the way. But I made it to 17 of of my 20. And if I hadn't lost that COVID year, I would have made it to a year and a half. I would have tried to go everywhere. And that was so eye-opening, so interesting. And I, you know, people within Eastern Europe Tend not to see it as a coherent cultural or any kind of. They don't see it as a coherent space. Poland has its east. Poland kind of orientalizes Ukraine, definitely Romania is like a different. You know, sounds completely crazy. Albania, Albania also doesn't look look to Poland and see something in common. But you go and I find these incredible kind of intimate similarities and connections. And so I was immersing myself in space, immersing myself in, in travel, and then really literature, I'm trying to read some secondary history, but as much literature and folklore and poetic writing as I could to get into stories because I'm talking more about shared experience shared types of event and types of social structure that I am doing a, a political history of ruler 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 war, ruler and literature was a better way for me to getting into that than strictly historical secondary source literature and then there's a little bit of archival stuff from my past life as a historian and some some catching
0: up. That was definitely something that came through when reading the book. Like you said, it's not a straightforward political history where you're really focused on the leaders or party politics or or wars, but you've really done a good job of picking out stories about individuals that offer these vignettes of everyday life at certain junctures in history. What were you trying to convey with those snapshots and by focusing on individual people and often very normal
1: people? That's kind of what my, how I use my family is not to tell a family story, but to use them as one family among many. You know, they had secret policemen, it had kind of far-right people all like living together in the same apartment, border warriors. It's kind of extraordinary, but also in a typical way. There are millions of families like that. And so I use them as an example in moments, and then I use many other people, really, sometimes not anonymous, but everyday, sometimes people who who come up in the archives because they were in some kind of legal proceeding, or because they they did something that got them in the archive, or had a memorable story, and it's seeking the kind of arch story of Eastern Europe. I mean, I grew up in this like Polish Jewish family that didn't really narrate their lives; that told anecdotes, snippets of their stories, really vivid stories going back to like the the twenties and even the czar. You know, kind of dramatic moments. I mean, everyone's got this story who lived through it of the moment when Germany invaded the Soviet Union. So they're Millions of versions of that moment on June 22nd, such a shock to people. And so that's when you're getting into shared experience, but also shared experiences of absurdity, of randomness, of not being in control of your destiny and having to find your feet, of being invaded, of having governments change. And what I've found in a lot of history of Eastern Europe, the, the ones that have been most popular, at least in recent years, are very much like a battle between superpowers, usually. Kaiser versus Czar. Stalin versus Hitler. You know, just the two big powers on the sides, very occasionally Turkey, but not very much, dueling the duel of giants. And in the middle, you'll talk about, oh, civilian casualties, something. You know, it's like a football match between these two giant powers. And I'm interested in the football. I want to tell the story of, the, of what's happening in between, because that's, to me, the East European experience, especially in the 20th century, finding agency amidst a world that's constantly robbing you of it. And that comes up throughout the region maybe throughout even a bigger European space, but I'm interested in how that plays out in actual people's lives, not so much in, you know, the battle of Kursk.
0: I think it it also allowed you to capture this very particular sense of humor that feels like a through line in terms of the culture of the region. That's hard to understand if you're not from there, if you haven't spent a lot of time there, but it seems to be one point of consistency is like this sense of humor and absurdity.
1: Had a Romanian reader, and they're like, Oh, right, we have a term for this. We have, I can't do the Romanian for but it's like laughing at our misfortune. And it's kind of like a punning thing. It's like, You laugh at what makes you miserable. I know my Jewish family went through horrible things, but they were really, really funny about it. And I start off with a story about my mom's aunt trying to get married three times. It took them 10 years. The first time they tried to get married, they were refugees in Minsk, and they had everything ready to go. They had everything ready to go to the civil office. In the Soviet Union, you don't go to church or synagogue. And then their friend runs in. It's like, Whatever you're doing, stop it. Tea kettles are on sale. It's like, well, you can't get married if you can line up to buy a tea kettle. Okay, so wedding's off. I think four years later, they're in Tajikistan. And, and that Polish immigration to, to Central Asia where they shipped people really far away from the front. That's really lucky for them. Because uh, mom's uncle was like the, in charge of the water for a village. So it became really important. So you got chickens, you got rice. They got the whole family down to somewhere on the Afghan border. And they're like, okay, we've got chickens, we've got rice, things are looking great, we can get married. They go to the, the, the Soviet official in town, and he's like, well, you're not married, but you're living together? You can't get married if you're living together. You have to live apart, and then get married, and then you live together. The application denied. And they're like, okay, never mind. Five years later, they moved to Western Poland the reclaimed lands. Then they moved to so They have this whole continent-spanning odyssey. And 10 years have passed. It's like, let's get married. And my aunt couldn't get off of work. She was a censor at this time in a publishing house, and it was high censoring season. She couldn't get off. My mom's uncle went to the office alone. They're like, you know what? This time, it doesn't matter. You know what? No bribes? No problem. Here's your stamp. Godless, anyway. It's not a real wedding. Who cares? So they finally got married, except she wasn't there. I always laugh at that. And I mean, so many versions of that but you have you know that intimate story of problems of everyday life of, but then you have the tides of history you know they're immense because the germans came into warsaw they're in uzbekistan because the soviets are passportizing the the poles and you have to go to central asia and then they're in they're in former prussian territory so you're being tossed on these waves of history and you have to hold on to to tea kettles and, and chickens and, and what have you. So that's kind of the start. And then I look for that and you find it everywhere. It is distinctly Eastern European. I think there's a lot of commonality with, with the whole Soviet world too, but there's something that in between zone, in between the superpowers is so tossed on those waves of history to have a different flavor to that experience.
0: To zoom out a little bit from like the anecdotes and the family stories, your book while it is like very personal at times, it goes back a thousand years and essentially covers the entire recorded history of the region in just a few hundred pages. And I wanted to ask you why you decided that was the best place to start. What were you trying to capture that would have been missing if you had decided to focus solely on Eastern Europe's modern history or even just like the last 150 years, for example?
1: I struggle with that a little bit because you can kind of read the second half of the book It's just you start in 1900 and you go forward. I wanted to convey the impression of a lost world, that there was something distinct, distinctly Eastern European that was progressively destroyed in the 20th century. And that is a kind of multi-partite, multi-ethnic, multi-linguistic, multi-religious social order. I think that is the unique, that's the special secret sauce of Eastern Europe. And this recurs in different places all through, especially that middle zone of Eastern Europe. And really, it's a pre-modern thing. But the roots are... Early modern medieval, because as Western Europe loses its diversity, expels, conquers its Muslim territories in Andalusia and Sicily, expels its Jews. Eastern Europe gains that diversity and develops this kind of organically, kind of slowly. This odd structural places of castle, town, countryside. Each of those places have their own faith, their own language, and their own separate identity, and yet they're very close together. You so have this diversity that's not. Regional, you know, it's not like oh, the Basques are in this little corner, the Welsh are in this little corner. It's woven through everywhere. I call that fractal diversity. That even a village will have, you know, it's Jewish merchants, it's Roma itinerant itinerant brothers, it's Ukrainian or Romanian or Bulgarian villagers, and it's aristocracy who are like Muslim Ottoman in one place, Polish Catholic in another. They're all separate, and they all live next to each other but apart. And that. Woven diversity, that kind of complicated structure, creates all these problems once you hit political modernity. Like, who gets to be in charge—castle, town, or country—and and then as you have these totalizing systems coming in from Nazi Germany and Soviet Union, you're also kind of pulling pulling that fabric apart. And for me, being from this now very small Jewish minority in Poland, I am interested in the story of Eastern Europe, as not as you know. Sometimes people tell it as a story of nation states. I'm interested in the story of societies, and of minorities in those societies, and a society made up of minorities, essentially. Because even the, the most powerful and wealthy usually are a minority group. The majority of the peasants are politically a minority, and often sometimes it's so diverse that there's only a majority in these cities by the 19th century that are like a Riga or Cernovitz, which are like, you know, four languages, four newspapers, no one having a full majority, just a plurality. That's the Eastern Europe I'm really interested in.
0: In the prologue of the book, you write about how much of the history of Eastern Europe was written in imperial capitals like Vienna, Istanbul, or Saint Petersburg and Moscow. But you also write that those capitals weren't where history was lived. Could you talk a bit about what these imperial histories of the region tend to obscure?
1: So, what's what's missed when you write from the capitals? I think the Russian Empire is an interesting example of that. And Russian imperial history, and my family is actually mostly from the Russian Empire, from that Polish and Lithuanian part of the Russian Empire. So I was very interested in it and got kind of deep in it, but Russian imperial history is written very much from St. Petersburg. And I think it loses a lot for that. There's a narrative that's told from the center that goes, Tsar, Tsarina, Tsar, Tsarina, Tsar, Tsar, that's very tied to Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, the Alexanders. And that's a very strong narrative. It's a very strong like story with recognizable characters. It's much harder to integrate all the territories, all the differences that Russia gathered starting in the 17th century, because that doesn't tell us coherent is a story. It's actually pretty disparate. Finland was ruled very differently than Poland, which didn't have that much to do with Georgia. Each one had its peculiarities, its different trajectory, and it's very hard to integrate into a story. So if people revert back to that Tsar, serena, Tsar Tsar, and everything depends on the center you know, on administrative decisions and on conquest, on wars, and you completely lose the picture of what's happening, say, inside the Pale of Settlement. How Poland is reacting to Russian imperial power very differently than, say, the German landlords who find an incredibly cozy spot for themselves in Latvia and Estonia and create also these huge tensions, say, like the Baltic Latvia becomes just this powder keg of a German ruling case that's very close and very tied to the center and a peasantry that's extremely alienated from its immediate rulers also alienated by language so it becomes this just powder keg in 1905 1917 and you lose that you lose that like intimate view of the village and the town because it still is always kind of what did alexander ii decide what did alexander iii decide so i'm interested in what it, what it looks like at that village level at that town level and at regional level and because empires are so disparate and it's, that's also true of the ottoman empire it's it's a little less true of the H- austro-hungarian empire because they had a little more coherent system, but it's still split and and dual. The History becomes a story of the central bureaucracy and of succession. And I think that misses everything that's crucial about specifically Eastern European history that is shut out from those decisions.
0: The book is sort of organized thematically, and then you hit the 20th century and you take more of a chronological approach, tracing the First World War and the Second World War, and then, of course, how the region becomes the communist bloc. Do you feel like this is where this idea of Eastern Europe sort of coalesces? Is this something that emerges in the 20th century as a coherent identity or a coherent space? Or do you think that this is something that's more so being imposed from outside?
1: I think it's usually from outside. I think Eastern Europe, and I think even for Eastern Europeans, you find out that you're Eastern European once you're in Britain or in America. And they're like, oh, that's Eastern European. That's Eastern European food. It's like, well, no, that's... Polish food. And then once you step outside, you do start to see commonalities. And you start to realize that people see you as part of a shared and fairly indistinct space. There's a pretty clear imaginary of what Germany is, what Italy is, what Russia is. And the middle, and you find this teaching, I found this teaching, is it's kind of people aren't sure of the geography, they aren't sure of the culture, they aren't sure of the the, the history. And people from Eastern Europe can feel that, you know, that sense of not being visible or fully present. Or if they are present in kind of the imagination of the West, it's in a very kind of derisive, derogatory way. I had a friend's student asked him, he's like, well, in Eastern Europe, do do people laugh? Isn't it just a gray place? Does anyone laugh there? There is a kind of like question mark over this whole area, but internally it doesn't exist as much, or it exists with a different, with a kind of parallax. Each country has its own version of the East. So in writing the book though, I'm trying to find my own description of an unacknowledged commonality of a series of resemblances and like shared affinities that isn't a single coherent identity. That I see something in common with Romanian identity. I see something in common with Albanian identity. There was like a nest of shared things, but it's not a uniform thing. I'm less interested in the the question of Western perception that Larry Wolf, like who created Eastern Europe from the West, the orientalizing view. I'm interested in self-representation. So as much as possible, I kind of don't use Western travelers or Western views. I try and use internal sources, internal literature. And if I do have a traveler, I try to flip it and have like Ottoman travelers. The the gaze from the other side, very perceptive, very clear-eyed about how this, these societies were organized and how they were ruled without that kind of French or English idea of we're enlightened, we're industrialized, you aren't. And that's it.
0: The book ends with the late 90s and the 2000s, discussing the divisions that emerged through the transition to market economies and democratic political systems and the way those have experienced some backsliding in in certain places. So this period, the last 30 years, it's also been characterized, as you discussed, by a reexamination of history. And this is still ongoing until today. Could you talk a bit about how this reexamination of history played out across the region and the ways that it has led to certain divergences? Maybe I should put that to you as a question, like, has Mm -hmm. this reexamination examination of history contributed to the disappearance of Eastern Europe that you're tracking through your book?
1: In a remarkable way, the last 30 years have been, for part of the region, it's been a real epoch of growth and positive change. And for part of it, it's been kind of a kind of stasis. The part of Eastern Europe that joined the EU, that big expansion, has had incredible growth, incredible transformation, incredibly fast, deep social and economic change. I think Slovenia just passed the UK in per capita GDP Poland's on track to, you know, stuff that's pretty hard to imagine, especially from my childhood. I remember where you couldn't buy ham in stores. And amidst all that economic and and geopolitical accomplishment, history in a lot of places has turned into the area where politics is waged. There's so much constrained by the EU that politics becomes about deciding what version of history is the one to promote, especially in Poland, Hungary, North Macedonia. But also across the Balkans, different countries have versions of the stronger or weaker of current politics being a referendum on past history, and choosing who to include and who to exclude usually exclude a lot. Hungary, I think, wrote into this constitution that it did not exist for 45 years of communist rule. That just was not a sovereign country. Going back to the Arrow Cross, going back to even before that to 44, it just was not a country, which is, I'm bold, it was there. It had people ruling it. Those people were Hungarian. But you're trying to establish new sources of, so- of legitimacy and sovereignty. And Ukraine had a lot of that contestation up to the present and still waging a discourse around its history. It's a pretty complicated, multi-part national idea the book was essentially done when the war started it was done. its like third draft I was writing doing our last rewrite doing last changes and then i had to kind of go back and say the picture i had of eastern europe in 2021 was quite different from the picture in 2023 where you had this thunderbolt of this war making o- old issues seem moot making a new issue unify the region in a different way. All the kind of cultural politics I was so interested in now seem much smaller and less vital. And yet those imperial memories, those imperial traditions are actually being exploited on the Russian side. You know, going back to, I think, much more so than in the Soviet past, Putin, at least, ideologically, in his the conception, goes back to an imperial history of seeing himself as an inheritor of Catherine the Great and Peter the Great and proposing to rebuild the Russian Empire. Really striking how the historical politics completely flipped, where Poland, say, which was really invested, they had spent all this political capital investment commemorating World War II, commemorating the the partisan war against the Germans. They kind of moved on to the partisan fighting, the very nasty internal war against the Ukrainians, Ukrainian-Polish kind of mutual ethnic cleansing in Volhynia and Red Volhynia and the Volhynian Murders, and commemorating that a new source of Polish martyrdom. Polish governments are always looking for new suffering to, to promote and memorialize, and that went out the window. That's gone. And Poland's and Ukraine now the, the closest allies, and the whole region's re, reorganized. In some way, geopolitically or geo kind of culturally, people don't want to be associated with Eastern Europe. At the same time, there's a solidification of everyone who isn't Russia, not quite everyone. Hungary's kind of the odd man out, Serbia odd man out, but a reorganization and an incredibly new, bigger voice in the EU, they've kind of stepped into a power vacuum or a leadership vacuum. There is a, an Eastern European bloc in the EU now as a voice, as a lobbying group, as a contingent where Germany and France are much less vocal, have a much smaller voice relative to them. So in a way, there is a reemergence of Eastern Europe, but I don't think that term is having a revival. And, and when I'm talking about Eastern Europe, I also am looking back to that braided multicultural society that's also not having a real comeback. We're we're very much in the world of nation states now. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.